John testifies in Revelation chapter 4, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and the one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones, 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne was like as if it were a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second creature like an ox, the third like the face of a man, the fourth creature like an eagle in flight. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, who is seated on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Glory to God. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we we worship you today. We thank you for your love that does not let us go. It is enduring. It is faithful. Oh, we thank you for your amazing grace. For without it, we would have no hope. For without it, we would not know righteousness. For without it, we would only be dead in sin and deserving of wrath. We thank you for your Son, holy, humble, to take on what we deserve, to take our place, to take on our sin and pay the price we earned give us his righteousness so that you see his holiness upon us credited to us you see the righteousness of Christ and you adopt us as yours we're justified and made right forgiven made new what a gift Lord what a blessing it is to be yours what a blessing it is to see the gospel at work in many around us to see your word at work and the making of disciples, to see reformation at work among much of the modern church is so lost. Lord, do your work in this day. Let us not lose hope, for our hope is not in men, our hope is not in our circumstances, but it is in you. Do your work, Lord, in our lives. Do your work in our marriages, in our parenting, in our working in the stewardship of our days. I thank you for your providence that the Apostle Paul would write this letter to Titus and we would be so blessed by it 
so many generations later and the church be helped to understand your will for us, how you want these things to be. Help us to submit to your good and perfect will. Do your work in us, each one, through the work of the Holy Spirit, profoundly and perfectly. We come ready, ready to be molded and shaped, convicted, even wrecked unto what glorifies you. Do your work in us this day for your glory, for others' good. What a joy, Lord. We pray confidently because of Christ. His name, amen. Thank you for your, church, your uh, prayers. Excuse my random fumble of some words or moments. It was a, a journey first hour, but the Lord got me through and uh, we'll continue to trust him. Grab your Bibles with me, church, and turn to that New Testament pastoral epistle named Titus. You'll find Titus, if you're brand new to Scripture, just after 2 Timothy and just before Philemon. We're passionate here at Disciples Church to preach faithfully through the Word of God and uh, to really preach it the way the Lord gives it to us. And the preacher's job is to be faithful in our exposition of the Scripture and helping you understand it biblically uh, and rightly and then apply it. And so what a blessing it is to see God's Word at work in us commit to these things and uh, the joy it is to spend this time. Today we move into chapter 2. So turn to chapter 2 with me. I want to preach the first verse today and the last verse of chapter 2. Chapter 2 is unique in that everything in the middle uh, is really uh, the, the application of what Paul is saying to Titus in the bookends, in the beginning and the end. And the bookends really go together. And in my preparation and prayer for the sermon series. I really saw an opportunity here to really work with both these verses in the same sermon. And then in the coming weeks, Lord willing, we'll move into the different sections as they apply to the different kinds of people that Paul is addressing to Titus. So with that, let's jump right in to Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. When Paul says, but as for you, he's turning from who he just was speaking about in the prior verses, speaking about how Titus should silence and rebuke the false teachers, those who claim to know God, those who claim to be good with God, but they proved to not belong to God by their lack of God-honoring works and by their teaching, which was linked to things that were false, opposed to God's truth. So he moves from speaking to Titus about how he should handle them, and then he says, but as for you, what should Titus do? But as for you, the you is Titus, the you is the qualified elders that Paul was clear to say that Titus needs to be identifying and raising up in that region of Crete that he spoke so clearly about. In verse 5 through 9, they are the elders, those ready, trained, qualified, needed by God's providence to teach and preach and train and hold accountable God's people, hold them accountable to sound doctrine. It is those that God's word calls the sheep to obey 
Who are those that God calls you, the sheep, to obey? Well, Hebrews 13, 17 says it very clearly. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The sheep are to obey their shepherds because qualified shepherds are teaching what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, God's leaders are leading God's people according to God's word, which is why God's people faithfully follow and obey them. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. There is an important clarity that can be missed here with a casual reading. Paul's not commending Titus just to preach and teach sound doctrine. That is surely a major part of what the elders are to do. We've seen that in the past sermons. Looking more thoroughly at Toda Scriptura, about all that Scripture teaches about the role of the pastor for the sheep. It is commanded that the elders are to be the ones to preach and teach God's Word, to teach and make sure that the church understands sound doctrine. But Paul's emphasis to Titus here is wider than just what comes from the pulpit. The emphasis he's applying is that Titus and the other elders are to be sure that the people are applying sound doctrine. While shepherds are to faithfully, unapologetically preach and teach God's word, to teach sound doctrine, the emphasis here, when we look at that word that we read teach there in the English, there, it is more, it's wider, it's a speaking, it's a vernacular among the saints by which the shepherds are to prioritize, encourage, and endorse what is proper sound doctrine. Elders are not just to teach sound doctrine to the flock, they are to shepherd them unto a lifestyle that is accountable with sound doctrine. The Greek word here that we read teach is to talk, to speak. It includes preaching, but it's wider. It's the establishment of a, a practice, a way of speaking, of reorienting, of daily living that promotes and holds accountable faithful Christian living. It's much of Paul's emphasis in Titus 1.9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy message, speaking of a qualified elder, to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So the instruction in sound doctrine is much of the counsel that comes, the speaking, the walking with, not just the teaching of sound doctrine. Counsel, accountability, guidance in sound doctrine. And to love those who contradicted enough to rebuke them. So here in chapter 2 verse 1, Paul is saying, teach the lifestyle of, faithful, of a faithful believer that accords with sound doctrine. In other words, when our belief about God is correct, when our understanding of his commands are sound, when, then we must not just understand them, we must apply them. We must act in accord with them. 
This is where Paul is going to go for the rest of the chapter. He's going to speak of a number of different people groups in the local church and what their lives should look like if in accord with sound doctrine. It's so important that we who belong to Christ are not people who say we love God, know God, believe God's truths, but then don't act on them. Don't trust him. Don't honor him with the lives that we live. Godly ethics must be rooted in sound theology. Paul here is weaving the two important dimensions of sound doctrine and sound faith into one fabric in this verse. It's super important, church, that we do this as well. For you can't have godly living without sound theology. And what is the point of sound theology if you're not going to honor God with the result of how you know it? If you remember Paul's opening in chapter 1 of the whole letter, look with me back at Titus 1.1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. There it is again. May Disciples Church be a people known for our knowledge of the truth and, and, and a lifestyle that accords with godliness. Those that Paul just got done calling out at the end of chapter 1, their lifestyle was detestable and disobedient. Now he's turning to how the true sheep of the Lord need to be shepherded in living in accord with sound doctrine. In accord, that word means what is fitting, what is proper, what is proper to sound doctrine, what is fitting with sound doctrine. What is the proper lifestyle? What is the fitting way to speak in any given situation? That's the focus here. What does this look like according to sound doctrine? This is what Paul's emphasis is to the church and the different churches that he's writing to. Um, Just as he's really encouraging Titus and the other elders to have a vernacular, a speaking a walking with, to reorient to these truths, Paul really models that well in his different writings, in the way that he really even speaks much of the same counsel to the different churches he's writing to. So it's not just that it was said once and they moved on. There's a practice there. We see an example of this, for example, in his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 5.3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Titus 2.1 But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Why is sound doctrine so important? Because without it, you don't end up with sound faith. Without sound doctrine, you end up with a lot of wonky stuff. Maybe a lot of good stuff, but blended with some wonky stuff. 
When evaluating a church, when evaluating what shepherds you're going to sit under and follow and submit to, this is an essential point of evaluation. Is this fellowship as wonderful, as nice, as sweet, as impactful in the community as they are? Is there a commitment to sound doctrine? As opposed to tradition, as opposed to denomination, as opposed to personal preference or experience. Paul emphasizes again this throughout the letters in the beginning of Ephesians 4 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Urge you to walk. There's the imperative, the command. He's saying, based on what God has done in you, calling He's put on your life, salvation He's given you, walk in Christ. Christ who's at work in you. It's time for us to walk, to do what he's commissioned us and saved us to do. So I would just ask you, church, are you walking, speaking, living in accord with sound doctrine? Are you walking in a manner worthy of what God's given you in the salvation of the Lord? Do you wake up in the morning in tune with the fact that you are under the authority of the king? You belong to him. You are now knowing what is righteous and what he commands you to do, and you long to do that with your days. It's reshaping why you live and what you do, what you don't do. Men and women of God, there's a divine reason why God woke you up today and commissioned you unto this day, that we would walk and talk the truths of God, walk in accord with sound doctrine. That there's an output of our lives that matches the input of the Lord. Dr. Lloyd-Jones speaks to this. He says, the matching output is in relationship to the doctrinal input that we've come to know. As the Lord informs and reforms us in sanctification and maturity, in sound biblical doctrine, there should be an equal growing measure of obedience and Christian maturity. This is what accords with sound doctrine. Paul would be in the front of the line to rebuke men and women of our day who are good and practiced and growing in doctrine and knowledge, but slow or showing no practical maturing in the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit and sanctification. I can confidently say that at least in principle, you agree with this because you expect more maturity and output from your elders than you do from volunteer ministry leaders in the church. Just as you expect more maturity out of ministry leaders than you do out of brand new born Christians. Paul is stressing in the different places that he's writing that it's not just taking in sound doctrine and enjoying it and benefiting by it or swelling in our head or puffing up with knowledge, but know that Christ is at work in us and through us. And the truths of God are, are revealing themselves in how you speak and how you act and how you prioritize your life. 
And what's important about that church is it's not just, uh, I have bigger words to use, that kind of maturity. It's, it's, the, it's the spirit at work. It's a growing gentleness and humility and patience with people. That is much of the maturity you see in those who are growing in these ways. James Montgomery Boyce had a keen observation about this. He says, there are some Christians who are primarily intellectual in nature. They love books. They enjoy study and delight in exposition of the Bible's great doctrinal passages. This is a good thing. It is proper to love doctrine and rejoice at what God has done for us in Christ. But the intellectual believer faces a great danger and often has a great weakness as a result of failing to overcome the danger. He loves doctrine so much that he stops with doctrine. He reads the first three chapters of Ephesians and delights in them. But when he comes to chapter 4, he says, Oh, the rest of this is just application. I know all about that, and skips ahead to the next doctrinal section and neglects what he perhaps needs most to assimilate. On the other hand, some Christians are primarily oriented towards experience. They thrive under the teaching found in the second half of the book. They want to know about spiritual gifts and their own exercise of them. They're excited about Paul's teaching about the family and other such things. This is where it's at for them. They find the doctrinal section dry and impactful, impractical. But you see, each of these is an error. Doctrine without practice leads to bitter orthodoxy. It gives correctness of thought without practical vitality of life in Christ. Practice without doctrine leads to aberrations. It gives intensity of feeling, but it is feeling apt to go off in any or often wrong direction. What we need is both. As Paul's letters and the whole of Scripture teach us, we can never attach too much importance to doctrine, for it is out of the doctrines of God, man, and salvation that the direction and impetus for the living of the Christian life spring. At the same time, we can never attach too much importance to practice, for it is the result of doctrine and proof of its divine nature. Thankful for those words from James Montgomery Boyce. So I ask you today, Christian, as you consider the calling on your life, are you walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Are you living in accord with sound doctrine? If not, what is out of sync and needs to change? What priorities of your days? Where do we need to go to work? Where might there need to be some confession of sin and new commitments unto what honors the Lord in these things? Philippians 4.9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Practice, church, the things that you've learned. Sound doctrine, right belief, and sound understanding of God's truth needs to find its way into how we live. It needs to do some pretty serious work. 
we're, we're sitting with the truths of the Almighty God, they should invade your life's priorities and practices. So much so that maybe you were on a career path that changes, a parenting, a parenting practice method that changes, a way of handling money entirely that changes. It can and often does equal some pretty big reformation in our lives. And it should. To accord with sound doctrine is what it means to be reformed. To be reformed is essentially to be committed unapologetically to what is biblical. But that commitment to what is biblical must find its way into how we live. Or what's it for? A reformed church, a reformed Christian, is someone who's been willing to allow the truths of God's word to correct and reshape and, and dictate how they do what they do, what they believe. I grew up in the church my whole life. There was things I, I thought I understood and believed and saw. It wasn't until a more thorough reading of the whole of Scripture I came to see things about who God is and how he works that I was never told. And therefore, reformation goes to work. Same with the historic nature of our church and practices and, and commitments and ways that we look to do things. We allowed the scriptures to change and overcome traditions. 134-year-old church, we've got a lot of traditions. right? Just because we've done it for a long time doesn't mean we keep doing it. There's a willingness to be captivated and to be given to the authority of Scripture. It is to value studying faithfully God's Word and then living out what is proper to sound doctrine. It's a commitment to not doing it our way, but a commitment to doing it God's way. I'm so thankful for the Lord's work in us, but may reformation not slow down. May it be an ongoing work of sanctification in our lives. May we never be done reforming and conforming to God's clear commands, that we wouldn't be given to these other things that I really like. I really like these things. I like these, I, I like it this way. I like these people. I like this style. We put that away. I want to be and be in the middle of what does the Lord make clear? That's where I want to be. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Jump with me now to the last verse of the chapter. Titus chapter 2, verse 15. Like I said, we'll spend the coming weeks with everything in between, 2 through 14. In verse 15, Paul bookends, he says, Declare these things, these things that are in accord with sound doctrine that he just got finished talking about that we'll study together in the coming weeks. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. 
why I like this link to the first verse is it's all much about the authoritative accountability that the shepherds are called to have with the sheep. As we really move now in chapter 2 and much throughout the rest of the book, there's a real practical application of what does this mean for, for the church, for, for even you, the sheep, for the saints. In the beginning of verse 15, when he says, declare these things, this is in relationship to what he said in verse 11 through 14. That word declare is the same Greek word, if you look back up at verse 1, that we read as teach. The English word teach, the English word declare, same Greek word. Talk, speak, testify. It includes preaching. Tell. It is, again, the wider vernacular of God's truths. It is the speaking of the gospel truth that we who've been born again are to have on our lips. It's, it's the coaching in the Christian faith that is in accord with solid Christian doctrine. And, and so in this way, maybe with this illustration, I can help us see the difference. In the preaching, the speaking, the laying out of the truth, and then you move on to other texts, and it's kind of laid down and it's done, you can go back to it. This is more of, it includes the preaching, but it's also just the repetitive nature of these good truths being reoriented and, and shared and reminded. It's, it's an accountable walk. It, it really is a consistent coaching. Forgive me, but I'm very much living in the middle of this right now. Blessed to be in spring in a regular practice with my boys of coaching them in our beloved game of baseball. Uh, it's a sweet time to be walking with them in a special way in a thing that we love and in a new season doing that at Legacy Christian Academy and raising up a new CIF team, having a ball together. As I'm studying this week and really understanding the, the unique essence of this, I'm just saying it's just like coaching. When you're coaching the players in what they must do in accord with the fundamentals of the game, or it's filled with error and misses and strikeouts and blunders, you don't just say the instruction once and then move on. There's a speaking it that is the vernacular of being on the field. In the coaching, we say it throughout the entire practice for weeks on end. There's a reminder, a reorientation, a calling back to it. We don't even just say it at practice. We say it in the game. In between innings, we're reminding them of those fundamentals that are proper That's what this is. That constant reorientation, that constant speaking, that good speech. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Declare these things. That we do that well. If you've been with me for any amount of time, some of you have been with me over 20 years now here. And so there's things you've heard me say Dozens and dozens of times. That, that's good in this way. There's a, a repetition. There's a language. As long as it's in accord with sound doctrine, it's part of the uniqueness of God working through your shepherds with you. And you'll see it and hear it even among those being discipled. A, a, a repetition of words, uh, of phrases that are helpful, that help us be 
honoring to the Lord or growing in discipline and discipleship. We need to not say, hey, find a new way to talk about it, constantly being new. No, no, there is a goodness to the vernacular, to the repetition that is unique to that local body. Yeah, it's not the same as, you know, John MacArthur's church or John Piper's church or Chad Vegas up the street or anyone else. They're different. They're unique to the, the shepherds among you. And that's okay, as long as it's in accord with sound doctrine. But that's part of that speaking, that authoritative accountability that we're doing. It needs to have within it now these next two layers that we see here in verse 15, exhortation and rebuke. Let's look at both of those specifically. Didactic commands Paul's giving to Titus and the shepherds to do this in all authority to do what? To exhort and rebuke. The word exhort there in the Greek is parakaleo. It, it means to encourage. Para means to come alongside. Kaleo, to call aloud. To lovingly come alongside someone and speak words that build up. But church, make sure you're, see, you see the depth of good biblical parakaleo, biblical encouragement. Because it's not just secular. Secular encouragement, or what you might call just shallow encouragement, is, I really like your shirt today. Nice. I like what you did with your hair. Right? And a biblical encouragement is to build you up. It's to press you into the Lord. It's to be, have some meat to it. Gospel encouragement is shared with the hopes that it lifts someone's heart, mind, towards the Lord. Gospel encouragement points out evidences of grace you see in another person's life that help them see, that help remind them, to help encourage them that the Lord is at work in and through them. Gospel encouragement points a person to God's promises that assures them that what they're facing, even as hard as it is, is under his control. That's good gospel encouragement. So Christians, can we check ourselves? Because sometimes we, we all can maybe be guilty of feeling like, ah, don't, don't give me the Christianese encouragement. Like, tell me I'm pretty. Tell me I'm doing a good job. Okay, maybe there's a place for that. But can we see that's the longing of our flesh according to the good of God and the truth of God, that other kind of encouragement, the best kind. That kind that does reorient you to Christ. That kind that does embolden your faith. It is the best thing for you, right? Secular encouragement is incomplete. Because any word of encouragement that only draws the hearer of the encouragement to themselves is only pointing them to the one who let them down. We need to be reminded who we are in Christ, who he is as our rock. This is true encouragement. Church, can we also recognize for a moment the opposite of encouragement is discouragement? This is the other way our flesh is often guilty of acting, speaking haphazardly, flippantly. When we're not tuned in, we're not abiding the sin at work in our flesh will cause us to look to discourage another. Why? Because that helps with my self-exaltation. 
If I can discourage you, then I feel better about me. So we reduce ourselves to focusing and speaking of someone else's weaknesses, mistakes, flaws. That's done out of arrogance. That's, that's done out of a heart of pride, of maybe even envy is what's being struggled with there. It's in our arrogance that we're guilty of thinking or saying or interpreting things in a negative form, observations of another. The flesh focuses on our differences, but Christ in us gives us a new focus and a new priority. Watch this. Christianity is built on the understanding, the gospel is built on the understanding that we were different, but we are intimately and eternally united at the cross. And in that, I'm the same as you. Jesus is the one who makes this possible. Jesus is the one who humbled himself to take on flesh, to get low, to get into the mud of the flesh with us, to, to, to die in our place, to take on the wrath we deserve, to sympathize with us, as we see in Hebrews 4. This is what makes the incarnation, God the Son, holy and perfect, taking on flesh, and the penal substitution, his substitution on the cross in our place. It's what makes it so glorious. That he did that while we were enemies. And as that gospel goes to work in me, it gives me a different way to walk with and look at you. A, a humble, joyful walk together. I love Paul's words in Romans 15, 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. See with me in this verse that the God of encouragement is essential for this, Christian. If we're going to truly know and practice gospel encouragement, we must first know the God of encouragement. God cares for his people with a holy perfection. The church is Jesus' blood-bought bride of his son. He loves us with a minute-by-minute -minute omnipotent care. Only in Christ, then, do I have that love, that encouragement received, and then able to be given to others. That's the gospel that worked through me. That's what's making war with my flesh, which wants to judge and, 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 and compare, and maybe I'll discourage you a little bit to up myself and blah, blah, blah. Praise the Lord for the God of encouragement, for his gospel to heal us and make us new and empower us to encourage each other. Praise the Lord that it is his good design to give us shepherds to be under their care and leadership. Back to Titus 1.9, that famous verse at the end of the qualifications of pastoral elders for the church, that they must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that we're able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. That word, give instruction, right there in the Greek is parakaleo, encouragement so that we can encourage others by sound doctrine. So see this with me. Good gospel encouragement is to be had. You should feel 
and receive good encouragement from your shepherds. But can I remind you, that's not your shirt's nice. Hey, you're doing a great job with this other thing. It might include some of that. But the good stuff, the stuff you really want, is the reorienting you to Christ stuff. That we are encouraging you by sound doctrine. This is the constant aim. The best kind of encouragement you can receive from us is really, and from each other for that matter, is the exhortation that is good for your entire being in life. That is the truths of God, the gospel truth at work in you. So we're to encourage each other in that biblical way, not in a shallow way. We're also to exhort, to exhort, I'm sorry, Exhort is encouraged. We're also to rebuke, to exhort, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. What is it to rebuke? It is to admonish. It is to correct. It is to convict. It it is to confront error, but not just point it out. It is to point it out with the hope and aim that, that, that you're restored, that you move to what is correct and righteous. Despite what the modern world says, which is we just leave everyone to their own thing. There's no absolute truth. There's no governing authority that we are to obey. According to God's good word, it is loving. It is right to point out the errors or sinful ways of another. I'm so sad when I run into people in churches who just don't embrace the good practice of this. It is all throughout the word that this is a good thing for us. God's word is clear in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Luke 17.3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if any is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. In a spirit of gentleness, keep watching yourself lest you be tempted. The Greek word for restore, characterizo, is a return to former condition, to set a dislocated bone back in its place. That's the work of admonishment. That's the work of rebuke. The goal is not shame. The goal is to bring them back in line with the gospel. And a great example of this we see just a chapter later in Galatians. You don't have to go further than Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Paul, speaking about Peter, named Cephas, when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face. Rebuked him right there. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Calls him out. You're not living in step with the gospel. You're saying you love the gospel. You're seeing the gospel at work. And now when these guys are around, you're throwing that away and doing this other thing. And that's leading other brothers astray. So he loves them enough. He loves the gospel enough to rebuke him. To admonish him. 
while Paul's didactic command is for Titus to use his God-given authority to encourage and rebuke those in his company, we really need to see, church, that the practice of exhortation, encouragement, and admonishment, rebuke, is given to all of us. And that we see that rebuke is good. Righteous rebuke. Rebuke done rightly, done God in a God-honoring way. Scripture tells us righteous rebuke is kind. To be corrected, to be admonished, is loving and kind. To the one being rebuked. Psalm 141.5, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Whatever rebuke the righteous is bringing, even if it feels like being struck, in the end, it's kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. It is kindness to be admonished. Why? Because it's not loving to leave people in their mess. One of the most loving things you can do for someone is to tell them they're wrong. We're not playing the world's lost and jacked up way of love. Love is God. God is love. There is a right and righteous way to love. Now, while it can be hard to receive rebuke or admonishment, I would argue that sometimes it's harder for us to give it faithfully. Fear of man and other things that creep in. Shepherds must do this for the sheep, but you also are to do it for one another. So to help us do this better, let me quickly give you seven practical tips of considering how do I better practice this realm of admonishment and rebuke according to Scripture. Um, systematic way of looking at some of these things. And the first, the first, and this is so key, you need to first admonish yourself with the word and prayer. What does that mean? Jesus gives instruction on how we are to do this in Matthew 7, 5. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In a self-righteous way, we can get really uppity and quick to want to start pointing out everything, and some of what's needed First and foremost is I'm dealing with my own stuff. Paul gives clear instruction how we must do this. Keeping watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. That's Galatians 6.1. Be willing and humble enough to invite in others. Hey, how might I be struggling here? What do I need to see? I'm struggling with how I'm seeing this. And this. Let me start with me. Number two, to come with gospel-centered sympathy and humility whether you've been there or not, whether you can empathize with them or not, you have to remember, you have to remember, you have to remember, you needed the cross just as much as they did. There needs to be no superiority in you. That, that, that emboldens pride or swells you up. All of your best deeds are just like theirs, filthy rags. This helps our posture, helps our demeanor to not come over the top, to be humble, to be loving, not self-righteous. As much as you're able, put yourself in their shoes. Consider 
how to remind them of the foundational gospel truths to, to see and embrace. Consider the manner in which you, you want to be approached by others. That's a huge biblical precedent. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. Matthew seven twelve. Be sure to come across with a word of brotherly correction, not condemnation. Again, Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The goal is not just to wield the right hand and hit them over the head. The goal is to help them out of their sin unto what is righteous. Do this with care. Number three, to pray for their repentance and their restoration. Church, we've got to be soaking this stuff in prayer. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is needed for conviction of sin and the empowerment unto righteousness, unto repentance. So let's go to the, the Lord in prayer. Paul gives us this wartime practice in Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. Not just praying for yourself, but praying for them. God would ready their heart. Praying that about that moment that you might confront them in love and humility, that the Lord would give you gospel preface and, and context, and that they would receive your love and care for them, even with rebuke. And if they resist in that moment, that God would soften their heart sooner than later to receive it. The Holy Spirit must be worked, so we must be praying. Number four, do not wait. There is a regular doing of this that needs to happen, that needs to be at work. Hebrews 3, 12-13, Take care, brothers, lest, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to not be avoiding the practice of encouragement and rebuke because it's for that person's good. It's love for them. I love One pastor says it this way, the ideal is that we live in such an honest and regular community in Christ and speak without delay and receive it with gospel-conditioned thick skin that mild, gentle words of rebuke and correction are commonplace. That sin is regularly nipped in the bud rather than given time and encouragement to grow into the tall, nasty weed that it can often become. Biblical wisdom says it is when it's going to be a formal rebuke, like in the formalities of Matthew 18, then there might be a little more wisdom in some strategy for the right time and place. But if it is a daily out of step with the gospel kind of struggle, then don't wait. Love your brother or sister enough to call them out sooner than later. Point them back to the gospel. Number five, we need to be gentle. You heard me read this in Galatians 6. One, brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. As we approach our brothers and sisters in Christ to correct and admonish and restore our flesh can wrongly puff us up. It can, it can start to get us too worried about the press back, and so we get kind of ready for battle, and we kind of just trust the Lord so that we're gentle. 
All of us need to work on this. I've had to work on that over the years and, and refine that and see that worked out in me. Galatians 6, later in that chapter 3 through 5, anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let's not miss this, church. This is not warning us against doing correction and admonishment. It's warning us against doing it arrogantly and forcibly and, and, and harshly. Since we all struggle with pride, we have to make every effort to be humble as we approach someone else's struggle. Another good biblical clarity is just to be clear and specific. We've checked our own log. We've asked for some counsel and help. We've prayed for restoration. We've been, we've been quick to get to it, and we're kind in addressing the sin. And so now we should be empowered to not tiptoe, but to speak clearly, to be frank, to be direct. And maybe a helpful way to that is to take time in prayer, in, in peace, to write out a simple list of, here's the good things I want to highlight. Here's the important things that I want to say. Bring it with you to not have to shoot from the hip and then miss that. Paul's prayer in Colossians 4.4 4 is about transparency in speaking the gospel, but I think it really just applies to gospel living. He says that I may be clear, make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. And then finally, number seven, that we follow up. If they receive it well, let's follow up with an email, a call, a text, they don't respond well, follow up with some further expression of love for them. Perhaps a reminder, you have nothing to gain, but for their good. If, if there's something that you were wrong in your, in your view of it or, or need to be corrected, you're open to that, you're open-handed with it, that you're praying for them, that there, that there is really a, a, an attitude and an approach that's like, I'm fighting for us, I'm fighting for the Lord. Have gracious words for each other. And when we do this, this is not small. This is a major part of the church thriving and finishing and, and running the long race. It's important that our shepherds are practicing authoritative accountability in these things that accords with sound doctrine, but not just them, that we're doing it with each other as well. It's important for us today, Disciples Church, because our church's health and longevity depends on a right practice of these things. It's in these books, it's in these letters that the Lord is going to refine and shape and teach and coach us unto what this should look like. That we would learn to do this better than we currently do. To be willing to grow in exercising these important things that honor Christ. The long-term effect of admonishing one another in active grace when administered in loving humility can have wonderful, helpful, and enduring eternal implications. James 5, 19-20, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Praise God when we overcome these hard valleys and hard crossroads. When the reputation of our church is not just that people walk, but that we lean in. We're doing this well to honor the Lord, to see it through. That we really are running the long race, that we're raising generations together. 
Finally, to wrap up this morning, consider Paul's words in verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you. The authority you've been given by the Lord is what Paul's saying to Titus. Why is it important that no one disregards the exhortation or rebuke of faithful shepherds on the sheep? Because it's done in sound doctrine. In other words, because the authority of God's word, God's truths, are at work. It's what they demand. Sound doctrine is only sound because it's of God's holy word. God's holy word is truth. It's without error. Therefore, it is the most dependable thing we have in this life. Paul's clear to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God. God's word here. And it's profitable. It's, it's effective. It will do what it needs to do for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As long as Titus and the other elders remain faithful to sound doctrine, faithful to God's word, they should let no one disregard them, disregard their authority, especially when they're wielding encouragement and rebuke. This is an important pillar that the Lord is giving us, the church, to see, to identify rightly, so that when it comes to us, when it's our turn, we remember this is what this is supposed to look like. I'm not judging the shepherds based on how I feel about this. I'm judging the shepherds based on or is what they're saying, is what I'm being held to biblical. If it is, then I need to step in and not disregard it. Paul spoke very similarly to the young minister, Timothy. 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself, to remain qualified, and on the teaching, on the doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is good for the sheep to hear Paul tell Titus that no one should disregard it because, as we'll see at the very end of the letter, this letter is intended to be known by the sheep, by the flock. It's in some ways kind of like if the husband is leaving the house and, and turns to the wife and says, in front of the kids, don't let them disregard you. He says that in front of the kids so that they hear his authority to remind them they are to respect and honor and obey their parents. Paul's doing that here. The sheep are to respect, honor, and obey their shepherds. 
This is not light. This is not a recommendation. This is a command. It is God's good design for how the church is to thrive and the gospel to keep going. God has saved us unto a body to do life together, to be true community, to practice the one another's, to grow in sanctification as we serve the king, testify the gospel, and make disciples unto the nations. The way he's ordered this to be done is for sheep to submit to shepherds, especially when being encouraged and rebuked. For often that's when we need it most. That's for your good that God put that in place. So this means we seek our leadership for counsel, for prayer, for help, for accountability. And we trust God's ordained work in and through them to lead us well. This is much of the specific nature of this portion of the text for the church. Let us be thankful when a faithful brother or sister loves us enough to reorient us and point us and even rebuke us back to what is sound. Paul's words to the church in Thessalonica are fitting closing to this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. There's a real trust you need to have of your shepherds, not because we're infallible. Surely we are not. But because if walking obedient to the Lord, if qualified, if remaining in accord with sound doctrine, it is the proper way we do this. May we be thankful for this provision. Thankful for this work among each other as we navigate these days in the valley of the shadow of death. May it be a wonderful blessing to your life, to your faith. This is God's goodwill for his church, for his blood-bought, beloved children, that we would be in accord with sound doctrine. Praise God for his work in us. Amen. For all the ways he's used these things to grow us, may he continue that work until he calls us home. Pray with me, church. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the blessing it is to have your written word, to, to slow and really consider the, the, the depth of these truths, the purpose of these letters and, and, and these writings and, and this unique portion of this letter for us as you've been so steadfast to provide it to us so that we, we could benefit from it. Help us to truly be convicted in all the perfect, specific ways the Holy Spirit is doing that in us to act, to, to, to put these to work, to respond, to, to grow, um, to not only have growing sound doctrine, but growing sound faith, life that is in accord with sound doctrine. And so thank you for the authoritative accountability that you give us in our shepherds, and the practice of how we get to do that with one another. May the church continue to be sanctified, edified, kept from sin and disqualification, and enduring under all that you would have for us until you take us home. Lord, help us to see how desperate we are for Christ. It is Christ in us and through us that empowers us unto these things, that gives us the humility, that gives us the gospel perspective, 
to even tackle, to, to continue, to remain in these things. And so let that be. It is not I, but Christ in me. Lord, hear us as we worship you in these truths. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.